Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Let's open God's Word now to the Revelation chapter 11. If you are visiting and you haven't been here throughout this study, I want you to know that We've been studying this book for, I think, 28 weeks, and then we've taken a a six-week break, and uh, we're not going to slowly get back into this thing. We're going to hit the ground running. Uh, We're going to be in in Revelation chapter 11. I'm going to pick up right where I left off seven weeks ago. Uh, If you have any trouble finding the book, it's the last one in your Bible, and if you don't have a Bible, there should be a hardback black one in the chairs around you. We would love for you to be able to see God's Word for yourself and keep it open, because I'm going to read it and then pray, and then I'm going to go back to it, trying to explain what we see in the Scriptures. So because it's been a little bit of a break, I'm going to pick up and I'm going to read from the beginning of chapter 11 and read through verse 6. That's as far as we'll get this morning. Revelation 11, verse 1, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise, And measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. This is God's Word. Would you pray with me before we go any further? Father, I do thank You for Your Word, especially, because if it's not for You giving us Your Word, preserving Your Word, and even giving us the Spirit so that we may understand and discern Your Word, Father, we would be lost. We would be left without any knowledge of who You are, except that which our depraved minds could concoct. So we thank you for the revelation of your word, and and I ask that you would fix our hearts and minds upon it this morning and give us a deeper understanding of what we see here. Help us to know how we can understand it, but also how we can apply it, and let it comfort our hearts in the way that it's supposed to. But also, Lord, I know that your word cuts both ways. It not only comforts those who are afflicted, but it also afflicts those who are comfortable. So let it have its way with us today. I pray that's in Jesus' name. Amen. So what role does fear play in your life on a day-to-day basis? What role does fear play? When we were children, our fears were mostly, mostly the result of an overactive imagination, right? The monsters under the bed weren't real. And the scariest thing in our closet was our dirty clothes, But as we grow, our fears become more tied to reality. Some of us fear sickness and disease. 
We fear losing a job, our worldly security. We fear death. Some of us live with a very real fear of loneliness. Anybody in the room have a fear of public speaking? Not one that I have. Praise God for that. Do you fear conflict and rejection that will result from it? At some level, we all fear losing those we love. These are common fears that all humans face. But there are some fears that we face as Christians that aren't common to everyone. We fear the future and what it's going to mean for our children. We fear death and whether or not our faith will be sufficient to bring us to God. We fear persecution and what hateful things the world may do to us as we seek to live faithfully for Christ in a hostile world. Fear is a hollow darkness that robs us of our joy in Christ. It oversells itself and causes our hearts to faint. It seeks to overshadow the truth and calls us to forget that our sovereign God of goodness and love is with us and will never leave us and will never forsake us. God knows that our hearts are prone to allow these fears to creep in. And He comforts us over and over and over in His Word with the command, do not be afraid. The psalmist tells us, God is our refuge. He is our strength. He is a very present help in the times of trouble. And therefore, we will not fear. Even though the earth begins to fall apart, even though the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, we will not fear because God is our refuge and strength. Psalm 46. When David felt fear creeping into his heart, he prayed bold and just emotion-filled prayers like this one. He says, Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the ends of the earth I call to you because my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. As believers in Christ, as children of God, we have a refuge, we have a fortress, we have a deliverer, we have one who will shield us from our enemies and allow us to dwell in his house forever. Even as we face the hardships of this life, or the trials that accompany our faith, or the persecutions that our enemies will throw at us, the Scriptures remind us over and over and over that we have a shelter from every storm, and His name is Jesus. So as we renew our study in the Revelation this morning, the theme of our passage is the comfort that we gain from what God has revealed to us in the midst of the fears we face in this world. The theme of our passage is the eternal protection that God promises to us and all those who trust in Christ by faith. You see, Revelation 11 describes to us the true church in symbolic language. 
It describes to us the church who has entered into the Holy of Holies by the blood of Jesus Christ. We are those who worship at the altar of the inner sanctuary, not the earth-scale model sanctuary, but the actual one. And we are those who are told that we dwell in the secret place of the Most High. We have been saved out of this world, and we are sheltered by the inner court of our living God. That's what we've been learning as we've been studying the Revelation and the New Testament. And Revelation 11 is a symbolic picture of that. Now here's what I want to do. Because it's been a while, I want to very briefly recap what I taught seven weeks ago in verses 1 and 2. And then, like I mentioned earlier, we're just going to hit the ground running and keep going from where we we dropped off. Now, if you have not been here for this study, it would probably be a good idea for you to go back and maybe listen to some of those sermons, especially the one that I preached right before this one. It would give you some context, my interpretation of this passage. Um, But I'm not going to go back and re-preach it. So we're going to do a simple recap, and then we're going to hit the ground running. The first thing we need to remember as we read this passage is this. It's very simple. We are the temple of God. We are the temple of God. Look at verse 1. In verse 1, John was told to rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. Now, I believe that the best way to interpret this chapter is not as a reflection of the past, which would be a preterist position, nor as an expectation of the the distant future, but as a symbolic representation of the present church age. This vision is not telling us that we should be expecting a new earthly temple to be built in Jerusalem. Rather, it is a reference to the true temple that exists today in the form of all those who trust in Christ by faith. The temple in Revelation 11 is a symbolic reference to the church because that is the place on earth where God's Spirit now dwells and it will be the place on earth where God's Spirit dwells until Christ returns. Now, I spent a whole sermon... Explaining that, that's a recap. So if you're looking at me with odd eyes, you're like, wait a minute, what are you talking about? That's not how I've learned this. I would encourage you to go back and listen to that, or we can talk later. God's instruction here for John to measure the temple, i.e. those who believe in Christ, it's a reference to God marking us out for his divine protection. And God's already done this. He did this in in chapter 7 where he talked about putting a seal upon the people of God and that seal was a spiritual protection against the enemy. And it's said in the context of those believers who were sealed actually dying physically. That seal is a spiritual protection. God is going to protect our faith and bring us into eternity when it's all said and done. And in Revelation 11, we're seeing another picture of that albeit it's a little bit different. It's it's about this measuring. By faith in Christ, we belong to God. We've been bought with a price. We've been secured in our salvation, not by our works, but by the work and sacrifice of Jesus. And by faith, we have been sealed. We've been measured. We've been marked by God as his children. And that's what John is is doing symbolically. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, we read this. In Him, meaning in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And that seal, that promised Holy Spirit, is the guarantee of your inheritance until we acquire possession of it. And that's what John is is keying off of here. The measuring of the temple is about God's promise 
to protect believers during the age in which we now live, during the church age. And the reason we need protection during this church age, this spiritual protection, is because during this church age, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so we need this. What this means is that as the true children of God, we are safeguarded by the Spirit so that we will endure the trials and tribulations that this world throws at us. But what kind of trials and tribulations are we talking here? Well, let's go back and let's look at the the next verse. The first point in verse 1 is that we are the temple of God. The second point in verse 2 is that we should expect persecution. In verse 2, John is told not to measure the court outside the temple, to leave that off, for it has been given over to the nations. The nations, the non-believing nations, and they will trample the holy city, which again is a reference to the church, for 42 months. The trampling of the holy city is a reference to the church facing persecution from the world. Like the seal put on our foreheads, or the foreheads of God's servants in chapter 7, the measuring of the temple promises that we will be secure in God's purposes from spiritual dangers. Here's the part you can't miss. But the angel's orders are to leave the outer court exposed because God does not offer to the church security from bodily suffering and death. I know that's hard. I know that's hard to hear. It is God's intention that we should remain outwardly vulnerable to the full hostility of our enemies, secure in our faith in the crucified and risen Lord. Let me just say this, and just be bold with it. If you haven't developed an understanding of what the New Testament teaches about the persecution that accompanies our faith in Christ, then you need to read your Bible and pay more attention to it. Jesus made it very clear that for all those who follow him, the road will be narrow and it will be dangerous. Jesus also promised that because the world hated him, the world will also hate us. And because the world persecuted him, it will also persecute us. The New Testament authors understood this. The the apostles understood this very clearly. And they walked out their faith in the midst of that opposition and had the audacity to say things like, thank you God that you have counted us worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. In Acts chapter 5. The apostle Paul does this really counter-human thing when he says, I rejoice in my sufferings because in my sufferings I am fulfilling what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. And here's what he means by that. He means that as I preach the gospel and this suffering results from it, I am so happy to keep preaching the gospel and keep suffering because the gospel advances. And I'm just a little cog in the wheel. The New Testament church understood that as we serve faithfully and boldly declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ, it will court opposition and persecution from the world, and they didn't shy away from it. In fact, to a man besides John, they gave their lives, these apostles, preaching and refusing to stop. And 
so many of our brothers and sisters who've gone before us have done the same thing. The early church knew that if they were faithful to proclaim Christ, they would be ridiculed and persecuted from the world, but they did not let their fears keep them from being a city on a hill. And what John is describing to us here in Revelation 11, and don't forget the original, uh, the original audience for this is the first century church suffering under persecution, and John is giving them this, them, uh, them this symbolic understanding of this is what you're doing. You're going to be bold witnesses in the world, and, and it's going to bring persecution and opposition. He, he tells them, you're going to be like a city set on a hill, doing what Christ called you to do, but you're going to be like a besieged city. You're going to be surrounded by enemies because you're under attack. That's what he's letting us know in this vision. But notice something else in verse 2. God not only promises that there is going to be opposition that we face, we should expect this, but he also tells us that the world's attack will be limited. God is only going to allow the temple to be trampled for a period of time. He says here, 42 months. 42 months, three and a half years. There's a couple of things that we need to understand about this. The first thing I want you to notice is that the 42 months is the same period of time, the same period that's mentioned in verse 3, the 1,260 days. These two things are parallel to one another. Persecution's going to happen for the same amount of time these witnesses are going to be operable. Does that make sense? This period of time is equivalent to three and a half years. But like most of the numbers in the Revelation, I believe that this number has a symbolic significance rather than a literal one. Now, if you hold to a literal understanding of this, that's fine. I'll talk about that in a minute. Your view may be very different than mine. You may have been taught very different than the way I am teaching this, but I have to be consistent with my convictions, right? So let's think about where these numbers come from and what biblical significance they may have. How many of y'all have ever heard of the prophet Daniel? Okay, I'm assuming more of you just you just didn't want to raise your hand. That's fine. I'll, I'll stop asking. Daniel prophesied about a time of persecution that was going to come against the people of God. And he referred to that time by saying it's going to be a time, times, and half a time. Time, times, and half a time. A time is a, a, a reference to a year. So that's a year, two years, and then a half a year. Interestingly enough, it's the same amount of time that John is referring to here. The Jewish writers understood what was happening there. In Daniel's prophecy, this time frame was in the context, it was referring to a period of tribulation that faithful followers of Yahweh would face. And that, that particular persecution would take shape around the temple. It would, it would actually be an attack upon the temple of God, where the people of God would suffer persecution for a period of time. But Daniel prophesied that at the end of that divinely appointed time, the redemption of God's people would be complete. In other words, God wasn't going to let it go on. He was going to bring it to an end. He was going to accomplish his purpose with his people. But that time, times, and half a time was the period that was described as this is when it's going to happen. Now, I don't know how much you know about history, but initially this prophecy was fulfilled. It was fulfilled at the time of Antiochus Epiphanes, who seized the temple from 167 to 164 BC. 
So you're thinking, well, if that was fulfilled, then what's going on here? Well, what's going on here is John is reaching back to that Old Testament prophet, and he's bringing that reality forward as a symbol for the church today. And he's been doing this the whole time we've been studying this book. He's reached back into Daniel's prophecy. He's reached back into Jeremiah's prophecy. He's reached back into Ezekiel's prophecy. He's reached into Isaiah's prophecy. And he's pulling those things forward, and he's giving them a new covenant uh, purpose, a new understanding for us as the people of God. And what he's helping us understand is that the church is going to face persecution. And it's going to be limited in its scope because God is going to limit it. And in the end, God is going to accomplish his purpose in the lives of his people. Now, I personally, now I try to, I try to be careful about teaching something that some of you are going to say, no, I don't think that's the way it should be understood. When it's just my opinion, you're going to hear me say things like, I believe. Now, I believe that the three and a half years should not be interpreted literally, that it's symbolic of a period of time. If you hold to another view, that's, that's up to you, right? And that's fine. In fact, the predominant view in the South and predominant view within the church in America today is probably going to be some form of historic pre-mill dispensationalism. And if you hold to that view, then you're going you're to see this very differently than I do. You're going to see that this is referring to a literal three and a half year period of tribulation when um, the tribulation is going to prevail upon a literal Jerusalem and a newly constructed temple. Some of you are nodding your heads because that's what you believe, that's what you've been taught, that's what you understand. And that tribulation period is, is in the future and it's going to follow a secret rapture of the church, right? And then it's going to precede the visual rapture of the church upon Christ's return. Now, you are well within your rights, your, your interpretive rights to believe that. I, that's just not the position I hold to. And let me make clear that just because I'm teaching it from my perspective, that doesn't mean it's the official position of this church. We are very careful about not having an official position on matters that are in-house debates among believers. When it's an in-house debate, it means we're brothers and sisters just seeing things from a different point of view, right? So you can hold to a different view, but I'm the guy with the microphone that's called to preach, and I'm going to preach it consistent with my views, right? That's, that's what we're doing here. If your view is different than mine, that's okay. Debates can happen. They should always happen with love. We should avoid arrogance at all costs, and we should be humble in our approach to these things, and we should communicate in love. Now, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to say, I believe it's symbolic, and that symbolism is confined by what God has revealed in his word in the past. I understand the difficulty with symbolism. I can make it mean whatever I want it to mean, not if my exegetical parameters are what God has already revealed in scripture. So just to tell you where I'm coming from in this, the point Right? We might disagree on the interpretation of this, but we are not going to disagree on the bigger picture of what God is revealing to us here. And I believe that the point of this is to convey to us as a church that there is no time that we will ever be in a peaceful relationship with the world. There is no time when the church will ever be in a peaceful relationship with the world. We are not to love the world or the things of the world, right? And there's no time where the world is going to put down its arms and say, you know what, just do whatever you want to do. 
Preach whatever you want to preach. Say whatever you want to preach. That's not going to happen. It hasn't happened in 2,000 years since Christ ascended. And it's not going to happen. And that's what John is telling us. These two things are going to happen concurrently. We are going to bear witness to the truth of Christ. We are going to declare the gospel in this world. And we are going to face the world's persecution and opposition. But only as long as God allows. We are the temple of God, number one. We should expect persecution, number two. And number three, we are called to bear witness. Look at verse three with me. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now, I'm not going to abandon my symbolic interpretation, but I've got to help you understand at least what I believe this is teaching here. What does this verse tell us about these two witnesses? Well, first, we see that they have been given authority And they have been given authority from Christ. Notice the verse says, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses. Now, if you go all the way back to Revelation 10, you will understand that the individual talking to John here is one who was described as a mighty angel. Some of y'all remember that, some of you don't. I argued that that mighty angel is a reference to Christ himself. I don't know how long you'd have to go back to listen to that sermon, but if you wanted to listen to that sermon, you could go back and listen to it. But this is Christ talking to John, and he's telling them, I'm going to give authority to my two witnesses. And those witnesses are going to do that very thing. They're going to bear witness. They're going to bear witness. Now, I believe that these two witnesses is a reference to us. And I just want to remind you of something. All of those who believe in Christ, all of us, have been called to serve under the authority of Christ, and all of us have been called to take part in the making of disciples. Are you familiar with Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20? Jesus says to the disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, and you, therefore, I'm commanding to go. We are serving under the authority of Christ, and we are serving with the responsibility of going out into the world, making disciples, teaching them, uh, and, and, and helping them to grow to observe all that Christ has commanded. This is our role. This is our responsibility. And so if you're a believer in Christ, brother, sister, this means you. You've been called to bear witness to Christ and what he's done for us. If you've been born again to receive Christ, then your calling is to bear witness to Jesus while there is still breath in your lungs. You may not do this by standing in a pulpit. And you may not do this as a missionary on foreign soil, but to bear witness to Christ and his gospel is a calling that rests on all of our shoulders. Now, I'm struggling. I want to go here, but I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to bring it back. <laughs> Jesus has called all of us to do our part. Whether that's you sharing the gospel with your family and friends and receiving at some level the ridicule and the opposition that comes with that. Or you sharing the gospel with your coworkers as much as you're able or with you sharing the gospel with your neighbors. It's not a mistake that God placed you where he placed you. He has fixed the boundaries of your habitation, according to Acts chapter 17. He, he placed you there to be a light wherever you are. Don't hide it. 
We're called to be salt and light wherever God has placed us. And that means necessarily opening our mouths and speaking truth. That's what we're called to do. We proclaim the truth about man's sin. We uh, proclaim the truth about our sin's incompatibility with the holiness of God. We speak about our inability to overcome our sin on our own. And we point to Jesus as the only one who can take away our sin and reconcile us to God. We call people to repentance and faith. Because Christ, His witnesses, have been given authority to do this. That's the first thing we need to know and be reminded of. But there's more. The second thing we see about these witnesses is that they have a ministry that will last for a defined period of time, the 1,260 days. Now, it's no mistake that the ministry of the witnesses of Christ is parallel to the persecution that's going to be suffered by the outer court of the temple, right? These two realities run together. And here's the way I interpret this. As long as the church is in the world bearing witness to the gospel, the world will be exerting effort in trying to silence our witness. These things will happen in parallel to one another. The third thing we see about these witnesses is that they are clothed in sackcloth. They're clothed in sackcloth. Now, if you know your Bibles, you know that sackcloth is used at various times. It's used specifically... Um, in two contexts, and they usually go hand in hand. It's used when there's a period or time of mourning, and that mourning is usually over sin, which means that that involves repentance. Right? So sackcloth is a symbol of mourning, and it's also a symbol of repentance. And I think, for our sake, it's being used in that context of repentance. Because our message, our witness is incomplete if it is not accompanied by the call to repent. Did y'all hear that? Our message to the world, our gospel proclamation is incomplete if it is not accompanied by the call to repent. The good news of Jesus Christ, the good news of our faith, is that salvation has been achieved for us because of the finished work of Christ on the cross. The gospel is the soul-liberating message of forgiveness. It is the burden-releasing message of atonement. It is the unleashing of the deep magic that breaks the stone table and sets the traitor free. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is a call to believe. But the gospel is also a call to repent. It is a summons for the hearer to turn away from their sin and to pursue it no more. It is a call to put to death what is earthly among us. It is a call for us to die to sin and no longer live in it. It is a full-throated and urgent message to repent, for the judgment of God is coming. This is what we're called to preach. We are called to proclaim to a hostile world that they are under the just judgment of God unless they turn from their sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what the sackcloth is all about. Because like John the Baptist, or in a similar fashion to John the Baptist, ours is a call to repentance. The gospel that we preach, the gospel that we teach, the gospel that we declare is a message of joy because of all that Christ has done, but our preaching must also contain an urgent plea for repentance. And those are three things we see about these witnesses. But here's the last one, or at least the last one I'm going to touch on today. Why are there two of them? 
Why are there two witnesses? Notice if you look down in verse 4, not only are there two witnesses, but they are also referred to or they are called two olive trees and two lampstands. Now, this is yet another reason why I believe that we are to understand these two witnesses in a symbolic way, right? Uh, Because John's just dragging that symbolism back in there. The text tells us that they stand before the Lord and all of this, the language of lampstands, the language of almond trees, and the language of standing before the Lord, all of this is temple language, right? And we're going back to that image, that picture of the temple of God, which we now are. All of this language is being used to describe the church that has now become the temple of God on earth. Do y'all remember the lampstands in the temple? These lampstands were fashioned out of gold and they were fashioned to look like, guess what? An almond tree in blossom. And there was oil in them and they would burn. And so you have a lampstand and the lampstand is not in the the most holy place. It's in the holy place. It's across from the table of showbread and the lamp would, would burn and the light that the lamp put off, that light was a symbol of the presence of God. I don't know if y'all knew that. If you didn't, there you go, right? And you might remember, if you've been with us throughout this study, that John has already referred to and seen a symbol, seen the lampstands before. Do you remember in Revelation chapter 1, when John first has this vision of Christ, and he sees Jesus walking among seven lampstands? Seven is the the number of completion. And the lampstands, we are told in that instance, is a reference to the church. Do y'all remember that? That same symbolism applies right here. That same symbolism applies right here. We are those who are witnesses and we shine the light of the glory of Christ in the dark world that we live in. When we shine in this world and we stand against the world's resistance, we are allowing the light of Christ to shine forth from us as a witness to his truth and his glory. So what I believe is that this verse and this whole chapter is is describing in symbolic detail the church. Going out into the world as witnesses with the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've been granted authority by Christ to go, make disciples, baptize them, teach them. And John tells us that this witness will have the effect of courting the opposition from the world. But then he tells us something else about our witness. That our witness will have the effect of bringing the fire of judgment upon those who reject our message and seek to harm us. Look at verse 5. If anyone would harm them... Fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. Now, do we have any Left Behind fans in the room? Please don't raise your hands. I'm sorry. If, if you are, that's fine. I get it. And, and, and in the Left Behind series, you see these two individuals who are going to step onto the world stage with supernatural power, and the wor- whole world's going to see it because it's going to be broadcast on television, and that might give us comfort because it gives us this idea, well, we don't have to preach the gospel, we'll just let them do it. It's not what Jesus is telling us to do here. Not at all. If you love that part in the Left Behind series, I don't apologize. What we're to understand here is that our message is a message of judgment. And this is hard to understand here. Because God says those who oppose our message and seek to harm us 
Like, we're, we're going to do this, and that's how they're going to be doomed. But then in verses 7 and 8, we realize, or we, if we read ahead, we realize that a beast is going to rise, and that beast is going to make war on these witnesses, and these witnesses are going to die. How do you reconcile that? Again, it's symbolic, and it's intended to be so. Since the time of Christ... Believers have faced harm in almost every way imaginable. We have suffered physically. We have suffered economically. We have suffered politically. We have suffered socially. And yet the scriptures tell us over and over and over again, as Christians were being raised up on crosses to line the Appian Way, being burned at the stake, we're being told that nothing this world can do to us can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. These two things happen simultaneously. And this comforting truth that no matter what happens to me here, nothing can separate me from the love of God. Nothing can separate me from the promises of God. Nothing can take away what God has secured for me by faith in Christ. That comforts us and even propels us to go forward and be faithful in the midst of that opposition. Because as we do this, as we proclaim the gospel, it's going to court opposition. But you know what? Those individuals who persecute the church, they will not ultimately succeed. They will face the judgment they deserve. Do you remember uh, Daniel's three friends? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You remember these guys, right? You remember what they faced. Bow down and worship the golden idol of the king or else. What do they do? They stayed faithful to Christ. They boldly stayed faithful and would not bow down and worship an idol. And because of that, the cancel culture warriors of Babylon found out about it. Oh yeah, the cancel culture, it's not new. It's been around a long time. But they found out about it and they said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to take these men and we're going to destroy them for their strongly held convictions and religious beliefs that Yahweh is the one true God. And you remember how that story ended. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego faced death. But they didn't face it alone. They were thrown into the furnace. But one like the Son of Man was there with them, right beside them protecting them. John is giving us a different symbol, but it teaches us the same lesson. Brothers and sisters, God is with us. His Spirit is in us. Jesus will never leave us, and nothing this world can do will ever separate us from the love of God in Christ. But for those who cause the church to suffer, for those who try to lead God's people astray, the judgment of God is coming. And it's a judgment we are called to declare. I don't think it's a coincidence that John sees two witnesses here. And this is going to be an obscure Old Testament reality, but it is here and it's very clear. There are two of them because a legal testimony in the eyes of God requires that there be two witnesses. Go back and and read Numbers chapter 35 and verse 30. Now why we don't see all seven of them here to reflect what we see in Revelation 1, I don't know. But I think that the two witnesses serve two purposes. Number one, they serve to substantiate our testimony against the unbelieving and persecuting world. And also, they draw our attention to another symbolic reference to the fact that our ministry is going to be like 
the ministry patterned by the prophets Moses and Elijah. Look at verse 6, and we are getting close to a close here. Verse 6 says, they have the power, again, he's talking about these witnesses, they have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And if you don't know, that's a reference back to Elijah and to his particular ministry when he closed the sky by prayer. And then he goes on and says, and they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. That's a reference back to Moses. Both of them, powerful prophets in the Old Covenant. And again, John is reaching back to these men, not saying that there's going to be just two people that come out in the future that have the power of these guys. I don't necessarily believe that's what's going on here. He's saying these ministries are going to serve as a symbol for the ministry we have today. Elijah was a powerful prophet of God. He proclaimed God's word to a nation in the midst of drought. He faced off against the pagan prophets of Baal, making his ministry one that confronted the wickedness in the world. Moses was another powerful prophet of God who confronted Pharaoh of Egypt for his persecution of God's chosen people. And these two men were used of God to confront the unbelieving world with the message of God's judgment unless they repented of their sin, particularly the sin of persecuting God's people. So the context holds. That's what this picture is all about. As a church, we preach a similar message, and that is why our ministry is said to be like theirs. They suffered for their service and for their witness. Moses was mocked not only by the Egyptians, but also even by the Hebrews from time to time. And even when they got across the Red Sea, they continued to complain against Moses. And Elijah suffered as well. He had to run for his life in fear because of Ahab and Jezebel. But in the end, God protected them. And God used them to accomplish his purpose. That's what we're seeing here. We have a purpose. And that purpose is going to be met with opposition. But that's what we've been called to do. And we should trust in the providence of God and in the promises of God to accomplish his purpose through us. Three points, four verses. We are God's temple. We should expect persecution, and we are called to bear witness. Okay. So, how do we conclude? What do we do here? Let's let's go back to the beginning, and let's remember the setting for this book. The original audience who's hiding away in a cave in fear, reading this word from God and from John. Let's remember these brothers and sisters who were weary and fearful because of their constant facing of suffering and persecution. They're seeking to be faithful to Jesus, but at every turn they face opposition. The world is closing in on them, and Jesus gives them this vision to remind them of their status in the world. They are the people of God just like us. We are the new covenant temple where God dwells. God's seal and protection is upon us. He is for us. And if he is for us, then who can be against us? This vision reminds us that we are here for a reason. We are here to bear witness to Jesus, even in the face of persecution. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to some, scandalous to others, but to those who Believe to those who are saved, it is the power of God for salvation. We preach that message. We are called to preach the message of repentance from sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We should expect that there will be fruit from our ministry. And there will also be opposition to it. 
but we guard our hearts with the truth that God is with us and eternity awaits. And as we continue to study this revelation, as we continue to study this chapter specifically, we're going to see that those witnesses who are going to be slain, but in the end they're going to prevail, they're going to be raised to new life, and everyone's going to see that. And the world's opposition will not silence the church, but will only make our witness and our suffering more effective in the Lord's hands. So what can we do? Let's pray. Let's prepare ourselves. Let's first of all believe the truths that we've seen. Let's embrace them. And let's pray that God would prepare us to be an effective witness for Christ wherever we are. Pray for God to open a door of opportunity for us to share the gospel with those in our lives, to be faithful to the calling that we bear. Pray that seeds that we plant will bear fruit for the glory of Christ so that He will receive the full reward of His suffering. Let's pray that now. Father, I do thank you for your word and I thank you for the time that we can gather around it to try to understand it better. And Lord, I do pray that you would fix these truths, these undeniable truths into our hearts. Now where my interpretation might vary from someone else's, Lord, I pray that that wouldn't be what we walk out of here with, but we would walk out of here with those big pictures that we agree and those big truths that we can't deny. So prepare us for them. Prepare us for what we will face and give us the spirit and measure that is necessary to make us bold in the days in which we live. Help us to trust you. Help us to not fear what this world may do because you are our refuge and strength. Use us. Accomplish your purpose. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.